What is worship? And when are we supposed to do it? Is it more than just Sunday mornings? We're going to talk about that today and a lot more on BibleStudyPodcasts.org, starting now. Hello and welcome, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us today. You are listening to BibleStudyPodcasts.org. Today is Wednesday, September the 8th of 2010. As always, I am your host, Toby Logsdon. God bless you guys. I am thrilled to have you here with us today. I'm really excited to be starting Chapter 12 of Romans. I don't know about you guys, but to me, this is like a big deal. We're finally uh, getting into the fun stuff. Uh, I know some of the theology that we've covered up to this point has been kind of strenuous. Uh, There's been a lot involved, and that's probably why it's taken us more than three and a half years to get to this point, but it's been necessary stuff, and I hope you guys caught that in our lesson from last week. So anyway, I am thrilled to have you here for this week. We're going to be doing part two of Romans chapter 12, verse 1. So if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 12, verse 1. We're going to get started with that here in just a minute. I do want to thank those of you who have emailed me or uh, maybe you've posted to the website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, in response to the lesson that we did uh, last Friday on Glenn Beck. And I realize that this is a controversial subject. I I really do. I realize how controversial it is. It's a hot-button thing. People get really uh, fired up about country and and God and, and things like that. Uh, But, you know, one of the things that people will say is, well, Glenn Beck isn't preaching Mormon theology. And uh, just real quick here, maybe as a postscript, you know, P.S., I did want to show you guys, I did want to throw out a quote that he threw out in that speech at the Lincoln Memorial, which is extremely Mormon in theology. He said, uh, the story of America is the story of humankind. 5,000 years ago, God's chosen people were led out of bondage. Man first began to recognize God and God's law. The chosen people listened to the Lord. At the same time those things were happening, on this side, on this land, another group of people were gathered here, and they too were listening to God. End quote. And so, time out for just a second here. So, what we're seeing here is extremely Mormon theology. Uh, Remember, we talked about this in the lesson last Friday. They believe that people were led to America by God following the destruction of the Tower of Babel 5,000 years ago. And they believe, you know, there's no archaeological evidence for that at all, but they believe that these people were listening to God over here and receiving a different revelation from God, a contradictory revelation from God over here. And there he is, right there, preaching it. And so as he was speaking, he stretched his arms out to two Native Americans and uh, and a rabbi who were positioned next to him. And of course, the Native Americans, Mormons believe, descended from those people who came here. They descended from the Lamanites. And, uh, and of course, the rabbi, those are people from the other side of the world. So as he's speaking, as Glenn Beck is speaking, he stretched his arms out to these two groups, the Native Americans and the rabbi, and he said, God's chosen people, the Native Americans and the pilgrims, end quote. So whether people realize it or not, Glenn Beck is preaching Mormon theology and Mormon doctrine. 
If you don't know what Mormon doctrine is, if you don't recognize it because you haven't studied it, it's very, very deceptive. But there it is. You've been deceived if you didn't realize that he was preaching Mormon theology. Anyway, I don't want to get all bent out of shape on that or anything. or you know, I don't want to get fired up in this lesson here today. We've got another lesson, uh, of course, to study here in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. So let's go ahead and get started with that with a quick word of prayer. Father God, we thank you for your calling, for calling us out of darkness and into light. We pray, Lord, that today you will reveal a lifestyle to us that will make our lives stand out. Reveal to us, Lord, how to be that city on a hill that draws the attention of everyone around us. We love you. We commit this time to you for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to start off our lesson today by sharing something with you guys that I found yesterday. And I really thought that this was hilarious. I think you guys will probably think this is kind of funny too. But, you know, as you are all probably aware, or maybe aware, I'm helping to plant a church here in Northwest Arkansas. And one of the things that we have to look at as we're laying the foundation for this church is uh, what will be required of people in order to become members of our church. Well, you know, one of the things that we do is we're planning anything with the church plant is to look at what other churches are doing. You know, there are plenty of of good ideas out there, and we figure that we probably won't come up with all the good ideas on our own. So, (laughs) So we figure, you know, it's more efficient to see what other churches are doing. So yesterday, you know, I'm looking at churches and what they're doing with their membership and things like that, and I came across a church that had listed some some really, really strange things for membership requirements. First of all, the website says, quote, membership for adults and youth will be the exact same and as follows. So here goes. Let's go through the list of things that are required by both children and adults who want to have membership at this church. So the first thing, number one, is, quote, pray and read through the entire Bible on a daily basis. <laughs> End quote. Now, I'm not making this up, friends. I'm, I'm quoting this word for word. Now, I, I'm assuming that they don't really expect everyone to read the whole Bible every single day. They probably meant that they want their members to be reading the Bible every day with the intention of eventually reading all the way through, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm totally off base here, and maybe they mean it literally. Uh, one might be led to think that that's the case, especially if they look at the requirements that follow. So let's keep going. Number two, complete Dr. Fruchtenbaum's discipleship program at www.ariel.org, end quote. Now, don't get me wrong. Uh, Dr. Fruchtenbaum has an amazing discipleship program on this website, www.ariel.org. But there are about 30 classes on there, most of which are master's degree level courses. And it would take years and an unbelievable commitment to diligent study to go through each and every class. Nevertheless, if you want to be a member of this church, put your thinking cap on because you'll need to go through the entire program. No doubt about it, uh, if you want to be a member at this church, you'd better be one smart cookie. Uh, and that brings us to number three, quote, write out the Hebrew and Greek alphabets, end quote. Now, I'm not kidding you. This is really what the website says. What blows me away is that they don't want their congregants to write out the Aramaic alphabet, too. I mean, hey, 
Half of the book of Daniel is written in Aramaic, so why not? But seriously, uh, what good is it really going to do to be able to write out the Greek and Hebrew alphabets? That's really just worthless information unless, unless it's the introductory session of a course in learning to read and interpret the biblical languages. But who knows? You know, maybe if we look at their website in two or three years, they'll require that too. They'll require their members know the biblical languages well enough that they can have all of their conversations and sermons and everything in those languages in church. And this seems like a pretty silly requirement for membership. Uh, But anyway, uh, not as silly as maybe the next one, uh, which is number four, quote, memorize Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13 through 53. And I think that means through the end of 53. And this is probably the most ridiculous requirement for membership yet. Listen, I understand the importance of memorizing scripture. I really do. I I really do believe that it's a practice that all Christ followers should be engaging in. But I also know that I've met some people who have huge sections of the Bible memorized verbatim, and yet they don't have fruit in their lives. They have the knowledge, but they don't know the first thing about applying that knowledge, applying what they know to their life. And besides, why Isaiah chapter 52 verses 13 through the end of 53? I mean, sure, that's a great passage, but why stop there? Why not just have them memorize the entire book of Isaiah? Anyway, here's here's the real kicker to all that. The whole section on membership requirements here is prefaced by saying, quote, we understand that we will have a small membership. <laughs> But it will be powerful for the glory of Christ Jesus, end quote. That's hilarious, really. They're apparently aiming for the smallest congregation ever. But, you know, let's think about why a church would have such strict requirements for membership. I think the point of all this is to make sure that the people who want to be members of their church are people who know their stuff. They want to make it clear that if you're not completely committed to learning and knowing what the church believes or why it believes what it believes, this wouldn't be the church for you. This page with the membership requirements makes that pretty clear when it says, quote, we do not want you to be a fluffy, carnal Christian without much knowledge or substance, end quote. So apparently, it's okay to be a fluffy, carnal Christ follower as long as you have knowledge and substance. That's the implication there. I'm sure that's not what they mean. I'm just kind of trying to be facetious. But, you know, at the other end of the spectrum, you have churches that have virtually no membership requirements. This would be kind of like the, you know, just show up and be one of us mentality. And in churches like this, there's little or maybe even no emphasis on knowing much of anything. But there's a huge emphasis on doing, doing good works for the sake of bringing glory to Jesus, for example. So it's doing or doctrine. These are the extreme sides of the spectrum. And most churches fall somewhere in the middle, somewhere in between. And the ones that fall on the very outside edges of the spectrum are kind of laughable, honestly. If you listen to our Deconstructing the Deconstructors series from last year, I think we did that in December, you'll know that the emergent church has a huge emphasis on doing things and trying to get people to come alongside us, but there's no emphasis on doctrine. Their view is that if we teach them how to do things, faith will follow. Also, although they are nowhere near the views of the emergent movement, there are other Christ followers who teach that one must repent if they want to receive salvation. There are doctrinally conservative followers of Jesus who teach that believing in Jesus is not enough for salvation, that one must also turn from their sins. They must repent if they want to be saved from the penalty of their sins. 
Well, Paul spent the first eight chapters of this book outlining everything that there is to know about the life of following Jesus. Chapter 12 picks up right where chapter 8 left off, with Paul writing in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. See, this is a call to action. While some would say that one should turn away from their unrighteous acts before they're saved, that they should repent before they're saved, the fact is, they can't. The Holy Spirit fills the believer at the moment that the believer is saved, and it's through this empowerment of the Holy Spirit that an individual is able to recognize their sin and turn away from it. There is no repentance prior to salvation because the natural man, the unsaved person, may as well be required to jump over the moon prior to salvation. It's just something that the person who doesn't have the Holy Spirit within them is incapable of doing. In his letter to the Roman church, Paul's told us that our salvation should elicit a response, twice so far, in fact. Once in chapter 6, which is addressing the person who has already been justified and made perfect in God's eyes, Paul exhorts us to present yourself as instruments of righteousness. And the second time Paul mentions anything about a response is right here, in the beginning of chapter 12. The principle that we should catch here is that Paul's telling us that because we're filled with the Holy Spirit. We're called to a different and a higher standard of living. Because we're filled with the Holy Spirit, we're called to a different and higher standard of living. Our actions should outshine the actions of those around us so that we are noticeably different from the person who is devoid of the presence of the Holy Spirit. But we should also see that our actions are inseparably linked to what we believe, doing, and doctrine, it's not an either-or. It's a both-and. They're both part of the same picture. They're not separate or distinct from one another. So Paul starts off by telling us that he's urging us. And this is this is interesting. The word that Paul uses for urge is the Greek word parakalo, which, when translated literally, means to exhort or encourage. The noun paraclete uh, has the same root as this verb urge or exhort. So it's no coincidence that Jesus referred to the coming of the Holy Spirit as the coming of the paraclete, which gets translated as comforter or helper in most translations. See, both of these words have the prefix para, which means alongside or together with. That's the same root that we would find in words like parallel or paraphrase. The Holy Spirit, the paraclete, has the ministry in our lives of coming alongside of us and doing exactly what the verb means, to urge, to comfort, or to encourage, to point us in the right direction. Jesus had told his followers, the Holy Spirit will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. That's from John chapter 14, verse 26. No doubt about it. Paul's covered all things up to this point in the text, and he's about to remind us of the practical implications of those things to act on those truths. He says, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God. You see, it's in light of God's mercy, which has been bestowed upon us, that we're called to do anything at all. It would even be possible to translate this as saying, I urge you, brethren, through the mercies of God. God's mercy towards us should incline us to live wholeheartedly 
for him. He died for us so that we could live for him. We were dead in our sins and now we're alive in him. So what are we urged to do in light of God's mercy? To present yourselves a living and holy sacrifice. You see, without God's mercy, the Holy Spirit couldn't dwell within us. If the Holy Spirit couldn't dwell within us, we couldn't present ourselves as a living and holy sacrifice. See, there are actually two aspects of this offering. There's the offering of our hearts and minds, the inner aspects of our beings, and then there's the aspect of our bodies being presented. Donald Gray Barnhouse says, quote, It should almost go without saying that it is useless to give our bodies if we have not, first of all, given ourselves. End quote. In other words, it's impossible for us to give our bodies if we haven't given our hearts and minds first. That's why the person who's not been made one with Jesus, remember from Romans chapter 6, the beginning of Romans chapter 6, that's why the person who has not been made one with Jesus will never be able to satisfy or please God with anything that they do. As Isaiah said, quote, all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment or a filthy rag. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. That's from Isaiah chapter 64 verse 6. Paul told us back in chapter 8 that, quote, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. That's from chapter 8, verse 8. See, there is no righteousness apart from God himself. So, of course, if we don't have God working in us and through us, our acts are actually an artificial righteousness at best. Even we, as followers of Jesus, can do things that aren't pleasing to God when we haven't surrendered That's the key, when we haven't surrendered our hearts and minds to him first. If we're doing the right things, that's great, but are we doing the right things for the right reasons? That's what God cares about, and that's why the emergent movement is so deeply mistaken in their theology. They're saying, do the right things and the heart will follow, but the Bible teaches the exact opposite. We have to surrender our hearts, surrender our minds and our will and our agenda and ourselves completely to him. That's why Paul told the Corinthians, quote, If I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. That's from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 3. And remember, that's talking about real, genuine, godly love, a sacrificial love that puts God and others before ourselves. If that's not what's driving our acts of kindness, then there's a selfish motivation. And if there's a selfish motivation, we haven't truly done those acts of kindness for the glory of God and for the benefit of his kingdom. You see, when we present ourselves to God, surrendering our hearts, minds, will, and bodies to him, it's only then that our offerings are pleasing to him. And that's the point, that's the principle that Paul is making for us here. Let me ask you something. Have you ever been to a church where people are dressed in their quote-unquote Sunday best? You know, back when I was uh, going to seminary in Dallas, I went there for a year, I remember that this, this whole thing with wearing your Sunday best, was a cultural tradition that just kind of blew my mind, if I'm being honest. You see, I, I had come from a really great church in Southern California where it was kind of a casual come-as-you-are type of atmosphere. And it wasn't unusual in that church for people to be wearing shorts or sandals to church. Uh, It wouldn't have been extraordinarily unusual, I suppose, to see somebody even wearing a tank top to church. So when I got to Dallas and started going to churches where people wore their quote-unquote Sunday best, 
I was like a fish out of water, honestly. So I started talking to people who were from the South, from the Bible Belt, if you will, to try to figure out what the motivation for dressing up on Sunday was. Honestly, it was a concept that was just totally foreign to me. But basically, what I found out is that people wanted to present their best to God when they went to church. Church was a time to worship, and so they wanted to worship in the best they had to offer. And now, over the years, the many years since then, I've heard the same thing from people time and time again when talking about this subject, you know, wearing your Sunday best. But here's the thing. Paul's telling us to do more than worship on Sunday. He's telling us to present ourselves as a holy and living sacrifice because it's an act of worship. He's not telling us to present ourselves only on Sunday. We're talking about a day-by-day, minute-by-minute, second-by-second thing. See, worship isn't an event. It's a way of living. It's a lifestyle that carries over into everything that we do, everything that we believe. We're not only called to surrender ourselves to God once a week, or maybe twice a week if you include Wednesday nights. Paul's instructing us to continually be worshiping God by giving ourselves completely to him. Sunday isn't any more of a day of worship than any other day of the week. You see, someone can't turn away from their sin without the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, but the person who has the Holy Spirit can and should turn away from their sin. They should repent. Emptying ourselves and forgetting about what's important to us is what will draw us away from the power of sin and into a lifestyle of worship, which the world can't help but notice. In the Old Testament, there were all kinds of sacrifices that people had to make as an atonement for their sin, but Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice and is the only sacrifice which is pleasing to God. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 10 says, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So there's nothing that the believer needs to add to that, and there's nothing that the believer can add to that. It was a perfect sacrifice that covered all sin. Before Jesus, a sacrifice had to be killed, right? There had to be death. There had to be blood. But now, but now, Paul calls us not to be killed. He calls us to be a living sacrifice. Instead of making a sacrifice and instead of bringing a sacrifice, we're called to be a sacrifice, a living sacrifice, a concept which is totally revolutionary. Rather than being a weekly event, worship is a lifestyle. Sacrifice is a lifestyle. So join the revolution, which means giving more of ourselves unconditionally and completely for the glory of God on a daily basis. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the gift of your Holy Spirit. We thank you for sending him to encourage us, to exhort us, to point us in the right direction, to point us toward living godly and righteous lives. Lord, we know that it's only through his empowerment that we're able to be living sacrifices. And so I pray, Lord, that you will teach us how to be a living sacrifice, that you will teach us how to worship you with our whole being, with our hearts, minds, souls, strength, everything, Lord. It's all yours. You bought it all when you bought us from our old master. Lord, we thank you so much for loving us the way that you do. We pray for your power to live as a living sacrifice for you.
May our actions be driven by the truths that your word reveals about how much you love us and what you've done for us. Thank you so much for this time, Lord. We pray that you will bless and preserve this message for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today, and keep growing closer to Jesus. In the springtime, they open and bloom. It's that moment the sun breaks through a stormy afternoon. Stars in the night sky, rain on the grass. Such beautiful moments, they'll pass. You are higher, greater, deep, more beautiful. Higher, greater, deep, more beautiful. Higher, greater, deep, more beautiful. More beautiful Take me